Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, July 15th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, returning to our microphones. It's senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Having spent two days away uh, doing a Chautauqua. Yes. And if you don't know what that means, you haven't read enough history of self-help in America and 19th century entertainment. Uh, This is a big thing that happened in 19th century entertainment, which were lengthy speeches by important people given in giant amphitheaters, in particular in upstate New York. And there you were. And what what were you speaking on? I was speaking about free speech and cancel culture. So it was really fun. It was it was actually an honor to be invited. It's a wonderful audience of people who, uh, some of whom, go for the summer and stay and listen to all sorts of different speakers and do all kinds of activities. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed myself a lot. Uh, and of course, uh, here holding down the fort with Christine gone and back with us today as ever, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So I I don't even know where to begin. Uh, There seems to be yet again one of these overly elaborate theories of political gamesmanship according to which the Democrats are playing four-dimensional chess once again with Bernie Sanders disingenuously demanding $6 trillion in uh in in budget spending so that it can look moderate for biden to come out with three and a half biden and schumer and the democrats to come out with three and a half trillion dollars in budget spending so bernie doesn't really mean it and he knows perfectly well that three and a half trillion dollars is a lot of money but now biden can say oh you say i held back the crazies i'm only spending three and a half trillion dollars in new money and i don't buy it for a minute that there is some kind of a conspiracy you know that people in politics do not sit around coming up with these schemes and plans this is a delusion based on people who make millions of dollars plotting television shows and movies and suspense thrillers about politics things are much more haphazard People in politics are often as thick and as dumb as you think they are from watching them on TV, including the leaders in the White House and all of that. Some of them are able, some of them are not. This is the you know entropic result of Democrats saying we have power and we need to spend as much money as we possibly can. Uh, we're going to have to come up with some way to pay for it in order for it to to only need fifty one votes instead of sixty blah 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 and this is what happened and they said they had a de- they said they had a full democratic agreement on this three and a half trillion dollar budget and they don't because mansion and cinema both have been very non-committal about whether they would support this and of course if they don't support it then they can talk about b- money like this until the cows come home and yes they're democrats and yes they feel pressure from their democrats and blah 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 and it's not going to happen and what's happened here is some kind of a a thing that came out, and maybe it'll be law, maybe it won't be law, but any idea that what we're watching here is a fantastic bit of brilliant, foresighted planning to put Republicans in a corner and put put conservative Democrats on law, and uh, uh, do not buy it for a minute. 
And we've been talking a lot about process, <clears throat> about the process of getting this passed and through re- reconciliation and committees and all that. But we haven't really talked about what's in it. Uh, and we really should be talking about what's in it because it's it's staggering. It's a behemoth bill that includes basically the entirety of their domestic agenda. And like you said, some of it's going to be carved off because some members are gonna, not going to want to do it. You know, parliamentarians going to weigh in and say, this isn't really a budgetary move, whatever. But the document has been established and it's never going to disappear. It's an exercise in Republican messaging and we, we should go through the bullet points. I don't okay, know if you, you want should to start, explain, but I can't. You've got, you've got to explain what you mean by that. You mean that it's a it's basically handing Republicans, uh, you know, yeah. the rope to hang Democrats with in 2022 and 2024. Laced with bravado, too. I mean, like daring Republicans to do something about it as though they wouldn't welcome every opportunity. So um, among these, the many priorities that are included in this, for example is an expansion of Medicaid or Medicare, no, Medicare and Medicaid um, to include, uh, you know, dental and uh, visual uh, vision coverage and hearing care. And, you know, that sounds all well and good if in theory, but Medicare's hospital insurance fund goes insolvent in 2024, a presidential election year. De- Democrats are going to have a harder time arguing for their expansion. than Republicans are going to have arguing against the curtailment of benefits for seniors and, and the ballooning of their hospital bills. It includes universal pre-K and free college, you know, two-year community college, which is, again, something that Republicans should be able to argue against or they should get out of the business, especially given the organic outpouring of hostility towards a racial curricula that's advocated by um, teachers' unions these days. It includes a ton of environmental provisions. It includes a tariff on imports from countries that don't meet arbitrary uh, carbon emissions levels, which coincides coincidentally the day of uh, a, a similar provision that was announced by the European Union. It would create a, quote, civilian climate core, which essentially creates jobs and climate activism, taxpayer-funded jobs and climate activism. Uh, it would impose limits on public utilities and force them to produce a certain amount of clean energy, a provision brought to you by the people who gave you rolling blackouts in New York and California. Um, it gives you, uh, you know, oh, um, the PRO Act. It imposes the PRO Act on you, which they couldn't get passed through uh, through actual legislation. So they're just going to do it in this one foul swoop, which basically forces you into union affiliation. If you're anywhere near a unionized shop, doesn't allow you to opt out. Uh, and they also uh, included basically uh, immigration reform, increases green cards and gives some illegal immigrants a pathway to citizenship. And then they conclude with a threat. They say, Republicans, you better pass this physical infrastructure bill. They already lost the messaging war around infrastructure, right? This was supposed to be uh, infrastructure was everything and anything. And now it's the Republicans already won that fight. They carved off physical infrastructure away from everything else Democrats want. So now they say, all right, Republicans, you don't pass this physical infrastructure deal on a bipartisan basis. Then we're just going to you know, lump it in with this, which the parliamentarian said we already could do. It's true. And it's just going to be an even bigger deal. Is that a threat or a promise? Uh, how many Republicans would say... Go ahead. This is all all layups, easy layups. If they can't argue against this bill, which makes all of their arguments for them, then they should get out of Washington. Well, and it's clearly a bill that is has made even the progressives, which have been very impatient and antsy about Biden's commitment to their 
ideas uh, happy. And I, I think it's notable that when they had a lunch meeting with all the Democrats, when they were unveiling all this, Biden received several standing ovations, according to Politico. And uh, But to Noah's point about what's actually in it, Man- Manchin zoomed right in on the fact that it seems to want to argue, it, the bill argues for the eventual elimination of fossil fuels. He's like, that's very disturbing. So if, if, you're, if your important vote right there has already decided that there's something very disturbing about this, you should probably not be giving standing ovations. You should be thinking about how to persuade and compromise on something. But in political terms, it's too late. It's too late. Even if Manchin manages to cleave that provision Mm -hmm. up and gets its left on the cutting room floor, it's never going to disappear from the political argument against what they're trying to do here. Republicans shouldn't let it. Okay, so Abe, um, I have a column in the New York Post today that says, uh, you know, the media announced that there was Democratic agreement on this bill. And then Manchin and Cinema said, yeah, I don't know. Gee, I mean, it's a very interesting bill they got there. I'm going to want to see what the consequences of it are. And so uh, there was a report for 14 hours. Democrats all agreed to this framework, to this $3.5 trillion framework. Guess what? They didn't. So why are the media reporting that they did? And my my supposition here is that this is where the rubber meets the road in media bias. We can talk about media bias till the cows come home. But, but, but part of it is credulousness about claims that reinforce the priors of the mainstream media, which are they want this bill. They like this bill. They want Democrats to succeed. They want there to be big government spending. And they want Republicans to be humiliated. And so when Schumer, when people come out and say, guess what? We have a deal. They're like, great. Here, let, here let, we're going to tell everybody that we have you have a deal, as opposed to like, really? Did Manchin? Uh, is he one of the fifty? Like, there are fifty. You need all every single Democratic senator because you're not going to get any Republican vote. So, is Manchin one of them? And then if they go, well, I, I Manchin may not. I don't. I mean, he. I, look, we have a framework. And then they can say, well, you know, if Manchin's not one of them, maybe we really shouldn't go out and report that Democrats have an agreement on a $3.5 trillion package. But they didn't ask that question, or the people who reported it credulously didn't sort of even do that elementary, uh, okay, I'm supposed to be skeptical, so I'm going to ask the skeptical question even though I don't want to hear the answer. And then they'll get the answer, and that's like, oh, crap. Okay, I guess I have to say they don't really have a deal. So don't ask the question. You don't have to get the answer. And here we are, and it's now two days in, and we're talking about this though as though it is a done deal, and it is not a done deal. So you don't think this is uh, yet more brilliant intra-party gamesmanship that, 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 you know, that accounts for the... Uh... For the for the difference in in the, in the in the two realities, no, no. I mean, I agree with you, and it's and and the thing about um, the sort of the cheering press here is that um, not only is it a, a bad to have a, a media that does this, and uh, for all sorts of reasons, including that we don't get the actual news, but <clears throat> even if you wanted to be um, partisan and strategic about these things, um, it doing things like that kind of reminds me of. Uh, when an election is coming and one side's one side, there's trouble, there's going to be trouble for one candidate, but they don't see it. And instead of sort of, um, see, figuring out the lay of the land, recalibrating and, and, and trying to fix things, they push forward. They, 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 they grab for sort of every happy pole that they can. 
um, and sort of create this reality that this is what's going to happen, <clears throat> as if that will somehow actuate that 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 reality. I mean, there's also like the phenomenon, and we saw this in 2018 with Trump pushing uh, the caravans. The caravans, the caravans are coming, and this is so scary, and Trump is activating fear of uh, immigration to turn things around in 2018, right? And then people go, they must know something. Like, they must have, look, they, they have a giant operation. They've raised a billion dollars. There are 435 congressional seats up. There are 33 Senate seats up. I mean, they must know something and have a lot of data. You know, we better take this seriously. Like something big is going on here. People are really worried about these caravans. And guess what? Nobody cared about the caravans. It was not. There was no, it wasn't a strategy. It was Trump thinking that he knew that there was a strategy. Everyone going, okay, he must, everyone's like, well, he must know. They must, they must all know. And there's a lot of this in politics where um, it is presumed that people are doing things based on serious, sitting down, cold-eyed, hard reflection with data in their hands, trying to make sure that they know what's what and what's going on. And in fact, mostly people are talking out of their ass. I mean, I hate to put it this way because I was trying to think of a synonym to say it, but I, I, I couldn't think of a proper synonym. And so I, I don't know how else to put it. Like, well, just that your so, intuition is correct, that you don't have to overthink this. Right. Democrats want a big bill, and it's now the middle of July, and they got to put it forward. And so somebody said, let's say we have agreement, and they did it. And what's more, what they do know is that the press is friendly. And what that means is that Republicans know. Republicans say we have a we have legislation to make sure that voting goes back to the way it was in 2020. And Republicans instantly know the media are going to say this is Jim Crow too. Like, and so that does become part of a strategy. So it's like, good, I'll give let you, them I'll say give it. You, because, yeah, go ahead. I'll just give you a brief example of this, the New York Times write-up of this, you know, sprawling smorgasbord of progressive priorities you know and the, at the end of it they say and this is going to be fully funded by not democrats claim this is going to be fully funded by mechanisms that in no way in the history of anything could they ever possibly remotely approach fully funding this thing without being deficit funded by deficits um they just say you know it's fully funded it couldn't possibly be to even to fail to attribute that to a claim, which they almost certainly would under if the circumstances, the parties were reversed and circumstances were different. They just reflexively re reiterate a democratic talking point there, even though it doesn't pass even the most basic skepticism. It's just not applied. Right. I mean, I'll give you another example from from what I was reading yesterday. And this is a very complicated issue uh, involving drug pricing. And it all has to do with whether or not uh, the government uh, can use its power as the Medicare and Medicaid purchaser of prescription drugs to negotiate with drug companies on the prices of drugs, which basically government is not allowed to do. Now, what it is allowed to do, what, what, what Medicare and Medicaid do do, is set prices on doctor's visits, procedures, hospital stays, that sort of thing in which there is a, there's like a schedule of payments for that stuff. But 
drug prices are different and have been in a different place, and maybe they shouldn't, and this is a very complicated issue. So somehow this is being woven into Medicare and Medicaid reform in this bill with the idea that it's fantastic because A, government will now start negotiating over prices, and B, we can then use the fact that government will do this because we're going to pass this in this bill to save $600 billion to a trillion dollars, and that's going to pay for part of the bill. Now, that savings should not be public exactly. I mean, it shouldn't go to paying for this bill. It should go to shoring up Medicare and Medicaid and their trust funds in theory, right? Because the money that is being saved is money for Medicare and Medicaid. That money is supposed to be set, sectioned off for the entitlements. Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security are supposed to have separate funding mechanisms and funding pools that are, you know, which they don't really but you understand what i'm saying here is that they're it's not supposed to pay for universal child care if you save money on medicare and medicaid it's supposed to be for the purposes of saving medicare and medicaid so they are saying this and then again reporters are 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 announcing this in a way that you can see if the circumstances were reversed and some bizarre form of creative accounting were being used by Republicans on a budget bill in this fashion, there is no way that they would get away with it for more than 12 seconds without some wonky reporter saying, hey, no, wait a minute. I mean, that is a, you're double counting here because effectively they are double counting because, of course, there is no there are no savings in Medicare. They're running in deficit and they're going to go insolvent and all of that. But it is effectively double counting to say you can use it to write down the cost of this large piece of legislation. And so um, we're seeing it in real time. There's a weird way in which I think the Biden administration's messaging to the American people about what they're doing. It, it reminds me of someone who's really in debt to kind of a mean bookie and keeps trying to give them, give people a little bit of uh, money to just keep them from sending his thugs, roughing them up. So like you, I, I sent you guys, you know, you got every, a lot of Americans got a letter from Biden with a return envelope from the Internal Revenue Service. Of course, you immediately open up that letter when it comes in the mail. And it was announcing, you know, oh, we're giving you some money per child. You know, the big package, everybody gets a certain amount of money. So there's the, Americans are getting that. Americans are getting all these promises about college and about, you know, universal pre-K. But they're not, the, the part that's not being talked about is what it's actually going to look like for the average American if a tax increases in their future when inflation is potentially also on the rise. There, there's been more concern, particularly by business CEOs lately about that. So I feel like he's kind of throwing little bits of money here and there and promises here and there to kind of just keep people quiet for as long as possible. But the, and the media's role here is, as you say, to actually run the numbers and to get some sort of semblance of an idea of when the bill will come due for a package this large. And I have a, a question maybe you guys can answer because I just don't know the answer. This child tax credit, it's a tax credit. Yeah, it's an advance on your taxes that you pay and the presumed deduction that you'll get at the end of the year. So it's taxable income, is it not? I believe no, so it here's, is. No, so here's the story as I understand it. Ordinarily, you have a refundable tax credit, which is what this is. You would get it next year you get it you file your taxes 
you get to apply the number to your bottom line. And presumably, if your bottom line is appropriately close to zero, you will actually get a check from the government for the amount of the refundable tax credit, which is not taxable. So that that is a refundable tax credit. It is not a it is not a uh, tax return. It's not um, what, what what do you call it? It's not what, what, when you get when you get your money back from the government. It's been so long refund. since I got a refund. refund. Yeah. Thank you. So that refund. was a stimulus, like the 2007 stimulus or 2008 right. stimulus. That was right. just your tax refund. Right. And if you didn't Advanced get a refund, too. yeah, right. You're going to give it back. Exactly. But in this case, it's not a refund. It is a refundable tax credit, which is, which means that if you're, if the number is, you know, less than zero, you get the money back. You get it, and that it's designed to give you money. That's what the earned income tax credit is, and all of that. Okay, and it goes straight so, into your bank account. They right. they deposit it directly into your bank right. account. Okay, so ordinarily that would come as a result of your filing your tax return. What they are doing here, and this was innovated, you know, I don't know, twenty years ago or something, uh, is they're they're doing it now, and they're going to do it monthly instead of. Uh, you know, instead of annually. So you'll get this $300 each month posited from the from the U.S. Treasury as your advance on your child tax credit. But that's the marketing part of it, right? It's like, look at what President Biden is doing. Yeah. He's literally putting money in your bank account. It's your money, yeah. but, you know. Yeah. Well, no, but I mean, that is, look, that is the, the wild card of large-scale government spending of this sort that we we don't know is will that you know will Biden and will Democrats in 2222 say you were $3600 richer per child because of us and you you know and we pulled as you keep hearing we pulled 50 million children out of poverty through this payment and if people believe it like this is why republicans fear that democrats have an upper hand if they want to hand out for if they want to hand out money, right? Which is who's going to turn it down? And aren't you going to be grateful that you got it? Right? That is that is the and you know Carl Rove believed that. Carl Rove wanted to do it in 2003 for Bush and by and Trump did it and now Biden's doing it and presumably every president from all time now is going to do something where they can say Hi, I'm the president. Here is money for you. But to, to the point about the, the lifting children out of poverty, there is a huge logistical hurdle that we will have to watch to see if the Biden administration figures out how to overcome with this particular policy, which is that it's it's for people. If you've already set up automatic filing with the IRS where they take the money you owe in taxes out of your bank account when you file your return, um, that's fine. They just put they have that information in your bank. They'll deposit your money. But most of the kids who live in poverty are also living in families or households where the, the uh, the family owes no income tax, right? They, they're below the line where they're actually going to owe income tax. So the question of how they get the money in the hands of those families, it's a large, pretty large number of people. And it is, of course, the ones that they want to boast about having helped. Uh, we'll see if how they do that, because that strikes me as one of those things where the bureaucratic mechanism, the federal government trying to get money into people's hands might not end up being successful. I don't know. Somehow, if people can get money from the government, they figure out how to receive it. I mean, that is, you know... Uh, people who don't have bank accounts still get money that they can take to a check cashing place and, and cash the check. So they have disability, they have SSI, they have whatever it is they have, and they there is a informal banking system that they use, and I'm sure 
I'm sure that'll that'll kick in here. Um, but that all proceeds. This is all money from the coronavirus um, emergency bill. That money for uh, child poverty or for the to the child tax credit, having nothing to do with this, right? I mean, this is here we are we've finally gotten the house the senate and the presidency and we are going to pour as much money as we can you know rain down the money on america or on our constituent groups or our favorite causes as much as we can if we can get it through before the door slams shut again in next november um and conventional political reality would say two things about this one of which is this is a very sane and sensible strategy they have it they're time limited they got their shot they should do whatever they can to get whatever they can get because the door is going to shut and so you know they're they're pushing what they can push and the other is Biden's in a weak position. Democrats are in a weak position. They've never had, no party in power on Capitol Hill has ever had a weaker hand than the Democrats have right now. Four-seat majority in the House, 50-50 Senate, only possibility, uh, actually it's 50-48-2, with Republicans having 50, uh, Democrats having 48, and then two independents that caucus with them. Uh Nonetheless, Harris can break a tie. This is a weak hand. And ordinarily, when people play weak hands, they play them prudently. They don't, you know, it, you know, if you're, a, if you're a 200 hitter with five home runs, you don't come up to the plate and try to hit a grand slam. You just try to get your bat on the ball because that, or, or walk, or, you know, do something because you're kind of unlikely to get the home run. But and okay, but their opponent. It's not a great analogy. No, I'm it's sorry. a it's a fine That's analogy. Okay, well, because right. let, 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 let me work Went with from the poker analogy. into baseball. <laughs> let me work with okay. the analogy. Their opponent, though, is on their own team. That's the issue here. You see, um, ah, so right. so when Christine talks about this um, sort of um, protection scheme, kind of you know this this shakedown kind of uh, appearance of the Biden administration, you know, sort of paying off paying off for protection. Um, I think that's very apt because um, who they have to please here is is the, who the administration has to please here is is the the left flank of the Democratic Party. I think, and I think there's no way, other way to play this without a huge public spectacle in which um, the party is seen to be in t- total disarray. If 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 the administration plays a very prudent hand here, um, I think all hell would break loose. Uh, among its among the the people to its left. So wait a minute. Progressives are going to be satisfied by this exercise and overreach in which certain Democrats kill this and the parliamentarian kills that and the rest of it fails and the party's in disarray. That's what progressives are. Progressives are going to reward. They 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 would be um, they will be less apt to go after their own under those circumstances. I don't know. They're very prone to magical thinking. They would they would convince themselves that some some force or another could have gotten all of this done if only there had been the will to pursue it. I don't know. I think I think Abe has I mean I don't know. The point here is that it, it, it's a version of 
Republicans in 2011 saying fight, 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 fight. In other words, like if you if you get it or you don't get it, you at least you didn't you know you didn't um, uh, castrate yourself. You did you weren't playing on the other team's terms. Right. You weren't you know you weren't letting re- Republicans get into your head and force you to censor yourself before you said what it is that you wanted to say. Right? That's Abe. That's sort of where. Where, where your logic lies here. That, yeah, well, I mean, th- those are the kind of things that, that people, you know, that liberals or progressives said about the Obama administration, you know. Um, it's, well, they it's, did after. They weren't saying it during. Right, I mean, right. I, And I say that because, you know, after the 2010 election, I wrote this piece for commentary right the day after the shellacking in which I said, we'll know if the Democratic left, you know, if it, it, we'll know if Obama is is genuinely in trouble if there is a leftist challenge to him in 2012, the way there was a leftist challenge, there was a right-wing challenge to to George H.W. Bush in 1992, and that Russ Feingold, then the senator from, from Wisconsin, was the obvious person to be that person to say, Obama has disappointed us. He has not been the progressive that we wanted him to be. He has not done what we needed him to do. He has not delivered on the promises that he made. And in fact, for all kinds of reasons, that never happened. And Obama kind of, you know, stumbled his way into us into a second term. Didn't, I mean, didn't really stumble, but you know, he did not run a re-election campaign by saying, "Boy, I was really successful." <laughs> you know, he said they're bad. Romney has a dog on the roof of his car. He wants to kill you with Bain Capital. And you know, uh, I'm still, I'm still the guy that you voted for in 2008. But that, and, but the Obama thing is, we we should remember this about Biden and the decisions he's making. Um, I found it interesting. I just as a uh, sort of an aside in some larger article about how the West Wing is running now from a few weeks ago. There was mention made of the fact that Biden replaced the portrait, the painted portrait of George Washington, that I think the last four or five presidents have all kept in the Oval Office, replaced it with a portrait of FDR. And this was supposed to be very symbolic of how he's envisioning the importance of his administration. But I think to the point about Obama and kind of his second term and the progressives being upset. Uh, I mean, Biden really is trying to fix that, right? That's it. He sees himself as the corrective to what Obama did wrong, right? So he's finally, it's his turn and he's going to get it right this time. And he puts FDR up there and he talks about a new big, new, you know, great society slash new deal type type language. Um, but as you've said many times, John, he doesn't really have the political power on Capitol Hill to get it done. So, right. Well, again, so if they pull off some major bill, uh, you know, a major budget spending bill that is several trillion dollars in size, if it's six or if it's three or something like that, it will be a real accomplishment. And it will be something that, you know, people who think that there are grievously calamitous ideas, uh, you know, enshrined in it are going to have to spend a decade trying to unravel and unwind and you could even say that it's worth the effort it's worth the try but how it's an but it's still a battle and again just to get back to the originating point here uh they all tried to pull a fast one over everybody by pretending that it was a done deal and it is very very far from a done deal doesn't mean that it's more it, I, I don't know whether it's more likely to happen than not or in 80% of the form that we see it in or something like that.
but it ain't no done deal. And, and once again, people, you know, who wanted to hear it as a done deal heard it that way and were happy. And then you have people like the Wall Street Journal editorial page who, at least for, for the purposes of rhetorical arguments, said it's probably a done deal and boy is America in trouble, you know? So one way or the other, but it, I just, it is not, it is not a done deal. And, you know, I know a lot of what I know about the workings of Congress and all this from reading our friend Yuval Levin's uh, remarkable work. Um, And uh, Yuval is on uh, the most recent episode of our friend Dan Senor's podcast, Post-Corona, the podcast that has, since the beginning of the year, attempted to offer a picture through interviews and, and uh, you know, with, with experts of all, all over the place of what America is going to be like and what the world will be like uh, after the pandemic is over. And so Dan really did kind of shift into total post-corona about, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, obviously now we're, I think, all a little wor- worried that uh, that the post-corona uh, moment uh, is a little further away than we thought it was. But um, his uh, conversation with Yuval, which you can download at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever, it is really a sensational discussion of the costs of lockdown and the experience that people have gone through and the ideas that we've heard about how the workplace is forever changed. The workplace, uh, as a result of corona, has now altered itself so much that people will be staying home and, you know, they won't have to commute and they can be home for their kids' baseball practices or do whatever they have to do at home. And it's really great. And Yuval makes the point that um, this is a much more ambiguous positive than people are realizing because, you know, remote work, under remote work, as he says, you can still exchange information with the people you work with over Zoom and over text and over emails. And you can exchange information and exchange the things, you know, basic knowledge that you need to know what's going on inside your company or your organization or whatever. But there's no way to build community over Zoom. There is no way to build commonality over Zoom that the informal contacts, the informal connections, the informal things that happen over the course of a day at the workplace um, are immeasurably important and all speak to this epidemic that we keep reading about of loneliness, particularly, by the way, male loneliness. Uh, You know, there's all these these, uh, uh, stuff in the last week about how increasingly men report they have no friends and 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 that they they don't have anyone they have no intimates to who with whom they contact and or you know or or unburden themselves or whatever and that the workplace is one of the places where you can establish the kinds of connections b- between people that make life worth living uh he calls it communication versus communitarianism that uh, we can still communicate, but we will have no commu- we will have no communitarian experiences. This is a brilliant conversation that Dan conducts with Yuval, following along conversations he's had with 
Neil Ferguson and Adam Grant and Billy Bean and uh, Ryan Salon, all kinds of people who have been been incredibly revelatory about what we've gone through and what we can expect to go through when we leave the, uh, you know, when we sort of leave the world in which Corona is the number one fact hovering around our head. So that's dancing or post Corona, Apple podcast, Google play, Stitcher, wherever download it, listen to the episode with Yuval. You will be happy that you did. So um, two things relating to the military. One, uh, the uh, collapse of Afghanistan and the, uh, you know, the government in Afghanistan, the military forces in Afghanistan is, of course, happening way faster than supposedly we had any reason to uh, expect. Taliban are now, like, openly assassinating military leaders uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the country. Uh, very little fight back, as you could imagine, given that nobody in the Afghan armed forces knows why on earth they're gonna what they're gonna be fighting for anymore if the government can't stand up? And uh, George W. Bush uh, yesterday, in a in an unbelievably rare uh, insertion of himself into the into a, the common political discussion, um, came out and said this was a grievous mistake what Biden was doing. That uh, you know women were going to go back into chains and and be immiserated and uneducated, and there was going to be slaughter on a large scale. And and why why is this happening? And um, you know uh, you know that he made a very conscious decision both during the Obama and the Trump years to keep himself out of the, of the conversation, but clearly thought that this was so morally important and in some sense, so uh, nonpartisan. So not a partisan issue that, um, that, that it was necessary to come out and, and, and talk about it. Um, I don't know that it will have any impact or effect. I do know it's too late. There's no effect to be had. 95% of American forces are withdrawn from Afghanistan. It's right. over. But I mean, I note, by the way, that polling, as you know, as as I suppose was to be expected, because it happens all the time. Polling, uh, Bush's polling was bad. Obviously, when he left office, remained reasonably bad during the Obama years, and then, of course, Trump used him as a whipping boy and uh, and and to beat up on. And so, Republic now apparently his numbers are, are are getting pretty good. But it's it it's just important that there be a marker of what happened here. That that's. Abe, right. you had an observation the other day that you should go into about uh, media's coverage of this sort of thing, of the Afghanistan withdrawal. <clears throat> yeah, I, I've just been struck by, especially, you know, as much as we beat up on the media um, around here for sort of, you know, uh, praising everything the Biden administration does or covering it so vaguely that whatever criticisms might arise don't. Um, its coverage of the of the withdrawal in Afghanistan, I think, largely, and I'm talking about mainstream outlets, has been, I think, a lot less sunny than one would expect. They are they are reporting um, on a lot of fear uh, uh, at the Pentagon and uh, among all sorts of American officials, and uh, fear uh, among uh, people on the ground in Afghanistan about exactly the kind of horrors that 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 this may invite. It's, it was um, shocking to me. And I think part of this has to do with the fact that it is such a genuine problem that that policymakers who have been involved in Afghanistan 
uh, all these years, um, are willing to talk, will talk to anyone in the media to get this message out that, my God, we are making this colossal mistake. And, they, and the message actually got through. I, I've, I even heard reporters, mainstream reporters, including NBC's Richard Engel, say the unthinkable that this isn't even really a war, guys. It hasn't been a war for a long time. We've just, it's, U.S. forces haven't even really been on the ground with Afghan forces. They're pretty much behind walls for the last year and a half. There hasn't been an American casualty in 18 months. And that's the sort of, and I'm, but I'm disinclined to give the press any sort of credit here because this is 20th party Congress stuff. Now the truth can be told when it's, it, it, the course is irreversible. This is the sort of thing that could have, should have been done during the campaign when this was an issue. Um, but at least now we're getting an unvarnished account of the horrors we're unleashing. And another news related to the U.S. military, we have leaks from, uh, I think it's Carol Leonig's book about uh, Trump's last days or last year in office or something like that, that Mark Milley, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, became convinced that Trump was going to, uh, this was, uh, we were, uh, Trump was going to try to uh, coup and uh, take over, and it was the Reichstag, and the Reichstag fought, and it's like, it was Weimar and the Reichstag fire and the and Hindenburg and uh, we're paper, you know, like every illiterate sort of thing you can say that relates to the rise of Nazi Germany by somebody who doesn't actually know anything about the rise of Nazi Germany. So um, uh, after the fact, he is now reporting that he was very concerned that Trump was going to take over the country and that um, uh, he got a call from a friend who told him that this was going to happen. He wasn't going to let it happen. Dad gummit. And then when he saw Michelle Obama at the inauguration, he said, you can't see my face behind this mask, but I'm smiling more broadly than I've ever smiled before. More. He talked about how he he told reporters that he had told lawmakers and, and his colleagues in the Pentagon to be on guard for what might come and they're going to ring the city and, you know, prevent anything else, you know, that's, that's going to happen from January 6th. Like he was really on top of this sort of thing. The Pentagon's timeline of events here doesn't really back up the kind of urgency that he's talking about here. They had, it's all public record. They had some meetings on July 2nd. They can January 2nd, January 2nd. They talked with the DC. They talked with mayor Bowser. They offered national guard, uh, the, the National Guard, uh, Bowser declined. They talked to Capitol Hill police, offered support. Capitol Hill police declined. And that was the extent of the chairman's involvement in preparations for this sort of thing. So, I mean, maybe he was talking like a resistance hero behind the scenes, but the record doesn't suggest anything well, like what they're talking about here. But I, I do recall this letter that went out after January 6th from the Joint Chiefs to the U.S. military. Do you remember this? Uh, sort of uh, reminding them that that uh, their role is to defend uh, the U.S. Constitution, at, right, at, that, at, at, but, you know, and, and to right. do their duty and not, you know, this it was like this sort of like behave, don't don't, you know, t- don't 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 turn into Trump's army or something. Well, it was, it, I, exactly. I'm sorry to interrupt. I think that came out of the what he describes as a conversation with Nancy Pelosi, where Pelosi is like, oh, my God, he's crazy. He, how do we stop him if he wants to launch a nuke? Like, you know, the, the, the post January 6th panic mode. Um, understandable to some extent, but, you know, the hyperbole that emerged in those 48 hours was something. And I think that was his response, the response to that 
fear, I guess. But I, I have to say, reading, reading the book excerpt, it's almost like he's he's writing himself into a Tom Clancy novel, right? You know, it's like, I'm this, you know, strong, stern hero who did all the right things and said everything in this very succinct and forceful way. I mean, maybe it happened that way, but I'm with Noah. I think there's there's some doubt about the, the kind of hero narrative that's crafted by a lot of people who, at the time, perhaps didn't behave the way they wish they had. Look, I, you know, it is possible to hold various ideas about January 6th in your head at the same time, uh, but most people seem unable to do it, which is that it was a disgraceful show of mob violence, uh, that it was this, you know, repugnant swarming of the Capitol, the utter disrespect shown to, you know, uh, the institutions of government uh, by this um, unruly, unsavory, and, you know, criminal mob uh, that uh, behaved in unspeakable fashion. It was not October 1917. They were not going to overthrow the regime and re and installed and installed Trump as 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 the universal dictator. Look, it's complicated. It was seven hundred lunatics. A lot of them were lunatics. A lot yeah. of them were rioters. Some yeah. of them were organized. Some of them were insurrectionary. It's not binary, right? I'm not saying it's binary. I'm saying what's binary is could the system withstand them? Yes. A despite what happened, the system did withstand them to some extent. Hundreds of them have been arrested. We have this bizarre circumstance in which people who are um, apologists for Trump are now trying to rewrite what we've seen with our own eyes and say, yeah, it wasn't so bad. What are you talking about? And I didn't really realize that Ashley Babbitt's a saint who was assassinated and blah, 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 blah. And all of that is disgusting. But I have to say that the hysterical rhetoric about the threat to our, you know, the threat to our way of life that we saw, that the threat to America could could really have been, uh, you know, taken over on January 6th. Now, granted, look, it's weird. There are these, there were these elector papers somewhere that I suppose ha- if they had been seized uh the physical manifestation of the electoral college that had to be presented to Mike Pence if they had been seized and fussed around with i don't know what would have happened then granted okay but they they weren't seized and no one knew where they were and maybe and in, in any case the you know the fact that the paperwork you know i know that if you play golf and then you don't hand your card in with your proper scoring, then maybe you can get disqualified. But somehow it just strikes me that really wouldn't have happened on January 6th with our election. Nonetheless, it was a terrible, horrifying event that suggests to me, you know, a kind of sickness in the American body politic that we are, that it was a manifestation of that we are nowhere near the, you know, the end of, and that we don't know what the final consequences are going to be. But we were not living through, you know, a a revolutionary moment, in part because they didn't have control of the military, in part because the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, from what he's saying, was 
thinking about this as though he needed to counter coup Trump. I, th- I think it's hard to take the chairman's comments here that he's making to reporters in the absence of, and I've been very reluctant to weigh in on this event, even though it was somewhat disturbing, but the uh, chairman sparring with uh, Representative Matt Gates gets, how do you pronounce his name? Yes. He's such a showman. I still haven't even internalized his name. That's that's how that's how poor of a showman he is. Um, but apparently, you know, they had the sparring over critical race theory because um, West Point uh, was teaching a lecture, or rather, teaching cadets on uh, white rage, and you know, Ibram X Kennedy's theories are part of all this. And and he, you know, General uh, Milley went back and forth with him, saying, you know, we teach Marxism. You know, we teach, uh, you know, uh, that doesn't mean we embrace Marxism. We teach a variety of critical theories. That doesn't mean we embrace the theories. Also, quote, I want to understand white rage. I And I'm white and I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to ter- overturn the Constitution of the United States? What caused that? I want to find that out, implying that this was a race riot, a white uh, nationalist race riot, which is sort of exactly what critical race theory teaches as a framework. Jonah Goldberg has said this in a very astute way. It's there's a big difference between teaching Marxism as a theory uh, and teaching Marxism as a framework for understanding the world, because Marxism suggests, you know, that all of human history can be subsumed into an understanding of dialectical materialism and class conflict. And that's the problem. And that's the distinction that needs to be made. And Millie made no effort to make that distinction. Quite the opposite, in fact. He seemed to agree with the prospect of a framework here within this theory, this critical theory. Um, and all this together, this very resistancy Twitter progressive language coming out of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in concert with this um, event during this hearing, uh, leave me with limited confidence in the general's capacity to execute his duties in a dispassionate way. I just think my, my experience is political generals who rise to the top in this way are very, very, very uh, conventionally minded when it comes to ideas about America. They, they're not like we represent old time virtues of, you know, respect and martial and this and that. They're like, you know, they, they, they're, they're liberals. They're cultural liberals because they, that's how you, that's how you make your way through, uh, the thicket. And, you know, the thicket of the military over the last three years has featured things like tail hook and, you know, issues of sexual assault in the military and questions of who's being promoted and all of that. And, that you know, you climbing to the top of the greasy pole in the military is a very, very complicated, very, very elusive thing. And the people who do it have political skills where they do not, they will not be controversialists who challenge, uh, you know, the exist existing ideas because some woke, you know, pre before woke, but some woke journalist will say they have retrogressive ideas about women or something like that. And that'll, that'll be the end of them. You know, they'll end it, they'll end it two stars, they'll end it three stars and they won't get any further. And the American public loves liberal military brass, you know, like it's, it's like it tickles them, you know, it's like, seems to be this, this, this animal that shouldn't exist and it does. And Hey, isn't that so great? You know? Uh, exactly. Um, so, uh, Guys, not to not to move from you know from men in uniform to men uh, without clothing on, but I'm going to do just that and talk to you about Tommy John's newest and most advanced men's underwear yet, 
Apollo with a performance-grade dry-release fabric blend that is exclusive to Tommy John. It's Tommy John's latest comfort innovation. You can't get it anywhere else. Proven to keep you drier, up to 7 degrees cooler than regular cotton underwear. And this is why Tommy John doesn't have customers but has fanatics. Soft, supportive stretches for the perfect fit every day. Apollo is available up to size 4XL. With over 50 million pairs sold, men across America love Tommy John underwear because there's no more flopping, sticking, or chafing. And like all Tommy John underwear, Apollo comes with the best pair you'll ever wear. It's free guarantee. Apollo uh, is high-end for your rear end, and you can't get them anywhere else. Right now, get 20% off your first order at TommyJohn.com slash commentary. Go to TommyJohn.com slash commentary for 20% off. TommyJohn.com slash commentary. See site for details um cuba let's sort of end on cuba so uh president diaz uh is softening his rhetoric apparently saying that protesters have some uh merit in their complaints and is apparently letting travelers come in with a lot of goods maybe because now he's essentially hoping for some kind of private import system that will help him at least have people come in when they fly in as tourists and they can hand stuff out to people on the streets that'll make them happier there was a very interesting suggestion from ron desantis yesterday that you know i don't know how this would work but ron desantis uh suggested to president biden that biden do what he could to release the internet in cuba that uh, that these efforts to sort of bring the internet down or to, to limit internet access in Cuba, if there were some way that we know of to help the Cuban people continue to communicate with each other through the internet, we should do so. I have no idea how this would work. I don't know. I do know that in 1960, we had a plane that could fly from New York to Los Angeles in 60 minutes, and we didn't know about it for 40 years. So... For all I know, you know, there are ways that we can we can let people in Cuba have the internet that I don't know about, and so um, I just think that's a. There are obviously things that we can do to help uh, under the radar, like quite literally, or under some version of you know <laughs> government blocking devices, and that's where I say like it's sort of low cost to us, maybe high return. Uh, yeah. Um, boost the short band signal of Radio Marti, um, satellite uh, internet broadband, um, covert CIA funding. Uh, that's the sort of thing that scares the pants off of liberals who don't want us involved in any sort of covert operation, covert activism. And the result has been the loss of Venezuela, the loss of Iran twice, the loss of Hong Kong. Um, we shouldn't be satisfied with the, that, um, the outcomes of our hands-off approach. And this, the reaction from the world of pop political figures uh, to the Cuban outrest, uh, outrage, or rather unrest and outrage, uh, has been um, surprising and quite heartening, in fact. I mean, the stories that you're getting from Florida are young people who are arguing over whether or not they should organize uh, you know, flotilla bands to deliver food or to organize armed un- insurrection. This is in mainstream media outlets. You have people like... Um, Pitbull is a pop music figure who had a statement, put out a statement yesterday, um, a video statement that was 
emotional, uncompromising, uh, demonstrating in support of the freedom that we take for granted here that these people want. Um, it's the sort of thing you would hear a Republican say. And all this must be taking the progressive left completely by surprise. They have internalized the notion that nobody really cares about communism in Cuba anymore, and they're dead wrong. Has, has AOC commented yet? I, I know she, she, didn't, she didn't for a long time, still hasn't. No, the squad in general has been notably silent, uh, especially for a group that, that will in- instantaneously start denouncing Israel whenever Gaza attacks. So it's, no, we did yeah. get a, a Black Lives Matter organization oh, statement yes. firmly in defense of the regime. Of the Havana. regime. Yep. So for all of you earnest people who gave your money to Black Lives Matter last summer, I hope you appreciate that it's being spent propping up a communist you're dictatorship. A, so yeah, good for you. You're a bunch of suckers and you should really feel bad about yourselves. Guys, how does your favorite restaurant consistently make such delicious food? The short answer, they have the right access to the right kitchen tools. And with Maiden's professional quality cookware and kitchenware, anyone is capable of making restaurant quality food at home. If you're serious about cooking, you should invest in your kitchen tools. Maiden's cookware and kitchenware products are used by thousands of the world's best chefs. Maiden produces professional quality cookware and knives for those who love to cook. They source the finest materials, partner with renowned craftsmen to make premium kitchen tools available directly to you without the markup. Maiden products are made to last and they offer a lifetime guarantee. Their cookware distributes heat evenly and can easily go from the stovetop to the oven and their knives are fully forged, perfectly balanced and stay sharp. They have 32,000 five-star reviews and their products are used by some of the world's best chefs at Michelin-starred restaurants around the world. Made in, better cookware for better meals. And right now, Made in is offering our listeners 15% off your first order with promo code commentary. This is the best discount available anywhere online for Made in products. Go to madeincookware.com slash commentary and use promo code commentary for 15% off your first order. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware dot com slash commentary use promo code commentary so i was embarrassed i was embarrassed to see uh both liberals and conservatives and mainstream media types and others poo-pooing and making fun of the fact that joe biden had olivia rodrigo uh the number one singer in the world in america today at the white house to try to promote vaccination among America's youth. People on the podium said, "Uh, who are you exactly? Um, Because they're 40 and they don't have kids or something. They don't know who Olivia Rodrigo is. People on Twitter were like, I don't know who this is. Uh, So fine, you don't know who she is? You, You don't need to know who she is. I'll tell you who she is. She is the number one singer in the world. She is the biggest star in America right now. And this is exactly what the White House should be doing. This is exactly the kind of thing, if what we need to do is boost vaccination rates, particularly among the young, this is what the White... This is... Democrats have access to pop culture figures. Republicans do not. Republicans never have. Democrats have access to the leading figures um, of, you know, influencers all over the place. That's whom they should be drawing on to make this happen. And she, and, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, so she also has like what, 14 and a half million Instagram followers. I mean, her following is vast. And this one thing about having a younger pop star do this, someone who, yes, definitely the Washington press corps had no clue who she was, is that 
she's not coming off as preachy. I mean, the problem with the Democrats' relationship with Hollywood celebrities is that they they too often allow the celebrities to talk as if they know anything about policy. Olivia Rodrigo came, like, I'm here to just say, go get vaccinated. She stuck to the message. She's an extremely talented, appealing person. She did a great job. So yeah, we shouldn't, right, the right winger shouldn't be mocking her and the left winger shouldn't be, you know, acting surprised. It was pretty savvy, I think. You know what? And if you don't know who she is, Google her, listen to driver's license, and if you don't like it, you can go jump in the lake because it's a fantastic song. She sings the hell out of it. She's somebody She's somebody we're going to be watching for another 50 years, and it is a great thing that they that they deployed her in this way, and I want to see more of it. Let them do more of it instead of having stupid meetings you know, uh, you know, with I don't know who, else, you know, I, I. So if Biden should go out to have ice cream with every single leading cultural figure in America, they should lick ice cream together, and then they should say, "Go get vaccinated." That's then he gets his ice cream coverage, and the media get a picture of him licking on the ice cream. And if they don't know who anybody is, it doesn't matter because they'll have to mention them, and the people who need to know who they are can repurpose that material on Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and whatever. And, and maybe that will have the effect that we want it to have. And don't walk around saying, who are you exactly? Like, really? Why don't you embarrass yourself? Okay, but re- recall that this is a press corps that lives in a town where they themselves and the people they cover frequently begin those conversations with, don't you know who I am? So they're, yes. they're like yes. faux, oh, yeah. I don't know who these people are. Yeah. They're, they're also, also they're young. Yeah. I mean, they, they're, yes. the media journalism cast is... Yeah, so they should know who she is. They're no, young. They should know no, who she no, is. no. The only reason why I know who she is is because I have kids who are over the age of six who wash her media products. If you're a young parent or not a parent at all, you, you might not even encounter her except on the radio. And then you wouldn't even know who she is, maybe because they don't introduce us. You, you know the song, but you might not know the artist, that sort of thing. She was on SNL like six weeks ago, and it was one of the greatest musical performances ever. That's all I'm going to say. You know what? You're sitting in the press room. They say, oh, look, here's Olivia Rodrigo. You got an iPhone in your hand. Google her name you lame third-rate hacks. Google her name. We'll be back tomorrow. (laughs) For Christine Abenow, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.